Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 30th, 2023, last Monday in, uh, in October. Uh, over the years, we've done a number of shows on Berlin, one with the uh, espionage writer, spy writer, Dan Fesperman, very popular writer. Uh, he came on the show to talk about winter work, a novel set in the Berlin of the uh, fall of the wall. We've also done a show with uh, Sinclair McKay, uh, or Mackay, a British journalist, very distinguished one. He wrote a book on Berlin, an autobiography, Life and Death in the City at the Center of the World. But one man who knows Berlin and Germany very well is uh, a previous guest on our show. John Kampfner is one of Britain's most distinguished journalists. His last book was called Why the Germans Do It Better. It was a bestseller. He came on the show to talk about it. Uh, and John is back now bringing his these two worlds together of Berlin and Germany he has a new book out, In Search of Berlin, the story of a reinvented city. It's just out and John is joining us from London. He commutes backwards and forwards from London to Berlin. John, um, when it comes to cities, do the Germans do it better? Either, Andrew, certainly not when it comes to Berlin in terms of what you would describe, what people would generally describe as a kind of mainstream normal city. The whole point of Berlin is that it is not normal and it probably doesn't want to be normal. That's uh, the subject I devote to the final chapter in the book, which is called Fear of Normality. And pretty much every step of the way, as you may well ask me, as we, as we tread through nearly 800 years of history, Berlin has always struggled to get it right. And in some ways, that is the endearing, the everlasting charm of the city. It's the kind of place where you can really stamp your own personality on it because it is so incomplete. It is so flawed. So Sinclair uh, Mackay's uh, book about Berlin is called Life and Death in the City at the Center of the World. Might the subtitle of your book me might be something about the city on the edge of the world? That's a very good. Maybe I should have thought of that. Um, it's certainly a city on the edge of, I mean, it's a neurotic city. When I was doing an interview for Der Spiegel magazine, Germany's main um, news magazine weekly, they asked me, it was a good question. They asked me um, at the end of the interview, if Berlin was a person, how would I describe it? Yeah. And I was, I was being spontaneous because I hadn't thought of it. And I said something along the lines of, courageous, exciting, neurotic, intelligent, curious, and would go and see their shrink once a week. It's that kind of place. It's a place where um, you're encouraged to think differently. Sounds more Jewish than German, John. Well, you may say that. It is uh, a very... The influence of Jews, and it's incredibly sensitive now because of everything that's happened in the last three or four weeks, the horrors that have happened. The Jewish history in Berlin is absolutely central. I devote an entire chapter to that, as I also devote an entire chapter to Russian history in Berlin as well. I mean, Berlin is a city of migrants. In some ways, it's quite similar in that respect to New York. 
each century, each era has a new wave of migrants. Jews came to Berlin from pretty early on in the Middle Ages to escape pogroms from other parts of Central and Eastern Europe. It might have not been particularly wonderful in Berlin, but it sure as hell was worse elsewhere. And to a greater or lesser extent, Jews made their mark on Berlin. Other groups, the Huguenots, the French Protestants, they came to Berlin to escape massacres at the hands of Louis XVI, who had revoked their rights. You've had Dutch coming, you've had Russians, as I mentioned, 400,000 of them on all sides of the political divide after the Russian Revolution in 1917. That's replicated now. And alongside that, you've had Turkish guest workers. And in 2015, famously, Angela Merkel, the then Chancellor, let in more than one million refugees and asylum seekers from Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East. And now you have Ukrainians too. So it's an absolute, the word melting pot was invented for Berlin. Yeah, so you 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 compared it earlier to New York. The other European city that comes to mind in your description uh, is Amsterdam, but also Paris. All these places were cities where migrants, political migrants, cultural migrants, economic migrants came. Why is Berlin then different from New York or Amsterdam or Paris? I couldn't think of two equivalent cities more different than Berlin and Paris, um, for example, and in many ways, Berlin and London. Both London and Paris and, and throw in, let's say, Vienna, are they feel very sort of complete cities. They have grandeur, particularly Paris and Vienna. They have grand boulevards, all the wonderful Haussmann buildings. Um, you almost feel a little bit intimidated. I'm generalizing, of course, but you feel a little bit intimidated in Paris because everything is so perfect and preened, certainly in the center of the city. Vienna, absolutely the same. I spent three months in Vienna earlier this, this year. Berlin is exactly the opposite, uh, largely, but not completely as a result of the Second World War, the carpet bombing of the city and the division that, that followed immediately afterwards. Every single building is reconstructed, redone in some way. There, is some, there are some beautiful squares and beautiful streets and boulevards. There is also a huge amount of ugliness in Berlin. One building just sort of rustled up on, on top of, or next to another. It really is a cobbled together city in a way that, that Paris absolutely is not. So again, without wishing to extend all these different analogies, in a way, it's probably more like, as a cobbled together city, more like an Asian city. But before we get to other comparisons, let's do our housekeeping, the necessary housekeeping. Give us a, a brief history, because in contrast to London or Paris, it was only capital of Germany uh, after unification in 1871. And even as the capital of Prussia, it wasn't it wasn't a, a first rank European city, was it, until it became capital of Germany? Well, let's roll right back, shall we? 1237. That is the year that Berlin is formally has subsequently been declared as the grounding, the foundation year. It's a completely random and in most ways bogus date. It is where on a piece of parchment, a reference to a pastor called Simeon and the word Berlin alongside uh, its, its neighboring market town called Köln, 
uh, were first discovered. Then um, the uh, one of the many invading kings or electors, um, uh, this man called Albrecht, who became known as Albert the Bear, and the bear is the symbol of Berlin now, he was deemed to be the first king. But actually, archaeologists who are working overtime at the moment, because it's an absolute archaeologist paradise, and now with so much building construction going on in the city, they're finding bones and skeletons and skulls, and I describe being with them, uh, that, that predate this random founding date. From then, I mean, Berlin, as I say, was just a tiny little two trading posts called Berlin and Köln. Nothing much happened for a very long time. Its growth was incredibly small, even within the German lands. Other big German cities like Nuremberg were and Frankfurt were coming up much, much faster than Berlin. And you do wonder why they ever decided to build a town, let alone a city, let alone a capital in, in this area that was Berlin. It was swampy marshland. It's completely, it's flat as a pancake. And so the chill winds from Siberia in the winter flow through the city. It was unloved and unwanted for many times. It didn't know. It's kind of like St. Petersburg, but it never had a Peter the Great. Well, exactly. Well, it did. I mean, Frederick the Great, who we'll come to, was uh, was a great king. And they've had, they've had um, there, was a, there was the great elector. So you had in 1618 the Thirty Years' War, which more than any war, more than the First World War, Second World War, decimated Europe. I mean, half of the population of Berlin and the surrounding area known as Brandenburg was decimated by it. Um, and then they began to build a series of architects over different periods. Berlin always sort of stumbled one era of enlightenment and then the next era of, era of sort of ascetism and militarism. Frederick the Great was regarded as um, one of the great leaders who brought in the enlightenment, as it was called, um, very much uh, by Jewish thinkers and uh, women who ran salons. And the thinker Moses Mendelssohn was absolutely instrumental in that. Anyway, then you fast forward, as you say, to 1871. Yeah, well, before we get to 1871, I want to remind everyone that we are speaking uh, with John Kampfner, the author of In Search of Berlin, one of Britain's leading journalists and certainly one of Britain's greatest Germanophiles, if that's the right word to, to describe uh, John. Uh, John, the way the way you describe Berlin as the city on the edge, a city stumbling, a city without a center, a city perhaps in crisis of identity, it, it, your, your presentation is so profoundly un-Prussian. What's the relationship or what was the relationship between Berlin and Prussia? Was it always kind of an outsider? It wasn't the heart of Prussianness. I mean, what did Bismarck think of, of Berlin? He didn't like it at all. Um, Hitler didn't like it at all. Pretty much anybody who liked putting on uniform and going to war didn't. Unless like you it. want to put on uniform and go to clubs, right? Well, exactly. Um, <laughs> so no, I mean, absolutely not. Berlin was seen as stroppy, um, self-indulgent, usually decadent. Um, just a pain in the butt. Not but how could it, sorry to jump in here. How could then it have been the capital of Prussia and then the capital of Bismarck's Germany? Why didn't they make Leipzig or Dresden or Frankfurt or Munich the capital? It was never going to be Munich because the whole Bavarian thing. Right. Okay. I get that. 
it's quite different. But yeah, I mean, there were... So 1871, when it was unified uh, under Bismarck and Kaiser William I, there were serious discussions, as there were, by the way, just before in, in 1990, after, after the reunification in our modern times, about do we really want this city to be the capital? Surely goes go somewhere else. Frankfurt was often mentioned as that, and Frankfurt was a big city in the in the medieval times. It's a pretty sort of ugly artifice um, now without much of a vibe. But no, I mean, Berlin, because it had uh, the, the Hohenzollern kings who came and made it their, uh, the centerpiece of uh, their kingdom. And gradually over time, they and Berlin and the surrounding area of Brandenburg just gradually increased their power vis-a-vis -vis, um, the rest of of the German lands. There wasn't a single Germany. There were just a series of different mm. principalities. And was there, even after unification, between unification and the First World War and then even through Weimar, was it always a center of resistance against Bismarck's Germany? It was a center of social democracy and of left-wing cultural and political thought, wasn't it? It was that. And the German Social Democratic Party found... Um, founded in one of the many beer gardens in Berlin, in the area that is now hyper-hipsterland, Prenzlauer Berg. Mm. Um, that is the oldest political party uh, that is currently, that still exists in Europe. And, and that's where Chancellor Schultz's uh, party, he comes from the Social Democrats. Um, Berlin has, yeah, it's been all of those things. But in that period, right, 1871, unification until the outbreak of the First World War, 1914. You can make a strong case, and I do, that that is the only time in Berlin's history when it was, to use the German term, a Weltstadt, which means a world city. It had everything mm. that a normal city like London and Paris had. Finance, economy, industry, culture, science, of course, politics, media, blah, blah, blah. It had it had everything in one place, a properly centralized uh, country. Then First World War breaks out. Um, the uh, Imperial Reich comes to an end. Then you have complete chaos, um, the outbreak of potential communist revolution in 1917, 1918, which was... Uh, uh, put down violently, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht ending up in the drink. And then you have 13 years of, uh, 14 years of, of sort of, depending on your point of view, wonderful freedoms or chaos, decadence and exploitation in the Weimar Republic. Then Adolf Hitler turns up. Then you have the war, the Holocaust, the devastation and division. It, now, it's really interesting to wonder out loud whether since 1919 unification, Berlin is not just becoming normal, but also becoming a world city again. It's certainly becoming a lot more normal, both in a good sense and a bad sense. But it's not really a world city because it doesn't have money. It doesn't have finance. doesn't it even does. have an airport. Wait. It does. It's a bit <laughs> crap, but it does. <laughs> Um, it was totally chaotic. Um, I mean, it opened during COVID, 10-year delay over, you know, uh, you know, double the costs, double, you know, double the length of time. And it's pretty... I mean, you know, ironically, of... I want to take a break in a second, John, but ironically, in a way, Berlin's always been Berlin. It's always, it's always been a big city and a small city simultaneously, hasn't it? 
Well, the uh, two kind of great, I, I start every chapter with a quote, and there's a very famous one just before the first war, this guy called Axel Scheffler. He said, it's a city always uh, never to be, but always to become. In other words, you know, never quite gets its act together. And Jack Lang, you may remember him, the um, yeah, uh, the French culture minister, came out with a classically French quote. He said, "Paris is always Paris, but Berlin is never Berlin." That's why we love Berlin and don't like That's Paris. Why we love exactly. Uh, yeah, so Berlin is rather like the German economy, uh, not the German economy, the Brazilian economy, always, always in the future, always on the horizon, never quite there. We are exactly. speaking with John Kampfner, one of Britain's leading journalists, uh, germophile, uh, who has a wonderful new book out, In Search of Berlin. He's found it and he's telling us what he's found there. We're going to take a short break. I want to thank our sponsor. Uh, Liberties Quarterly, wonderful new uh, publication, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a, a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with John Kampton to talk about contemporary Berlin. So don't go away, anyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We've been speaking with John Kampfner, the author of In Search of Berlin, a wonderful new book. John's memories and analysis of both Berlin's reality today and its past. John, I'm not sure if you're familiar uh, with the work of an Indian writer, uh, Amit Chowdhury. Um, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Sojourn, um, and he came on the show. It's a book about his experience in Berlin. Um, he, it, It's a kind of noirish book, and he travels to Berlin and, and, and finds himself slipping into what uh, he describes as a fragmented fugue-like state. It's a city of memory or a book of memories. And I know for you, Berlin is also all about memories. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Chowdhury book, but it seems as if you and he share a similar conception of this place. Yes, I am familiar with it. And we probably do in, in, in some ways. I mean, Berlin is a city of memory. It's a city of memorialization. It is a city absolutely riddled with history. Every paving stone, every building is riddled with history. And yet you can't see the history because very few of the buildings are as they were at the time to, uh, the, that you are referring to in that history. Compare that to Paris, the Bastille. Compare that to London. And, and the Tower of London. You just don't get that in Berlin. So you have to use your imagination. And it's a city of trauma, not just obviously the city that was at the heart of the most traumatic experiment know, known to man, the Holocaust and the Third Reich, but it is also conversely the city, as I alluded to earlier, where people from around the world have often come to to escape trauma. Now, that could be that they're coming to escape pogroms or other forms of persecution. But it's also, in a modern context, a kind of place where people just come, they come to hang out. 
um, that is, it's not just hedonism. It's not just clubbing and that sort of thing. It's also a kind of place that you've got the time and the space to reflect and also turn yourself into something else. I mean, David Bowie, uh, when he yeah. was feeling kind of put upon and just wanted to come to a place where he could create some new and original music and just kind of escape the hullabaloo. And he came to Berlin. Yeah. Did you see the movie on him? Uh, there was a section, uh, the, the latest, I can't remember who it was by, but... Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny. In some ways, I mean, it's classic marketing. Um, Berlin now has three Bs that it um, that it markets itself on. Bowie, the club Berghain, which everybody, I'm sure all your listeners know about, is the kind of the mega club where to get past the bouncers. They show, they show absolutely. Did you uh, get in, John? They let I, you have in? In, I have got in with an Italian friend, yeah, but only because, you know, he was known, and um, you know that was by by the skin of my teeth. The Pope was it? What was it? The Pope? Was it? The... <laughs> it wasn't the Pope. It was, it was somebody that the Pope would probably. I could not think of anybody that the Pope would dis disapprove <laughs> of more than than this guy. And and the third B is Babylon Berlin. Yeah, which is. Uh... The great decadence of Weimar, which is a bit of an artifice. Um, I mean, you've you've clearly so to speak, John, fallen in love. We've done lots of shows on New York. Uh, many New Yorkers love New York. We did one with the New York Times correspondent, architecture correspondent, Michael Kimmelman, wrote a book about New York. And he came on the show talking about why it's more important to, to walk New York than any other way of doing it. And then we had one with Dwyer Murphy, another great lover of New York, telling us to go out with an iPhone. I assume... You spent a lot of time walking and you, you weren't looking at your iPhone while you were in, in Berlin. Is that the way to do it? How do we, how should we go to Berlin in addition to reading your new book? Well, guilty as charged. I do, I do have a tendency to look at my iPhone. I haven't yet walked into a lamppost or walked in front of a car, but, um, you know, I always run that risk. Absolutely. Foot, uh, Berlin on foot or Berlin on bicycle. Mm. Uh, there, uh, particularly when it's not the middle of winter, because it can be absolutely killingly um, windy uh, and cold. But in the summer and the spring, and it is just the most delightful city. Everybody, you kind of think of outdoor living as a sort of particularly, I don't know, a particularly sort of Italian or Greek or Spanish thing. But uh, in Berlin, everybody is out and about in the summer. It's a kind of fest. People are just sort of playing music on street corners. They're juggling. They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're always, always drinking beer or, or wine. But isn't that different? I mean, you you split your time between London and Berlin. Is that dramatically different from London? London has, of course, has its parks. Berlin has its woods. Well, Berlin actually has a huge park, the Tiergarten, which is absolutely wonderful. Yes, magnificent. And it has Grunewald, the huge forest. It also has the lakes where everybody goes swimming in the summer. And some of them are really easy to get to. Some of them, some of them less. So they are very, very different cities. Berlin is only three and a half million people. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. The city as small as that's got such a housing shortage. Uh, but it does. London, depending on how you cut it, is 10 million plus. London is much, much busier than Berlin. How does it compare now? I mean, obviously, we, I mentioned Munich. Munich is much wealthier. I think it's probably larger. It's certainly more economically significant. And then places like Leipzig and Dresden, which have be 
yeah. become very fashionable. In, in some ways, maybe you'll correct me, uh, mini Berlins. Yeah, Leipzig um, has been dubbed, was a few years ago, dubbed Heipzig um, because uh, there was such hype around it. And it's the sort of, it likes to think of itself as what Berlin was 20 years ago. Uh, and there's something to be said for that, sort of young musicians, artists, whatever. Berlin is a lot pricier than it used to be, a huge amount pricier than it used to be. It's still much cheaper than equivalent cities. When you compare it to other kind of more established West German cities, yeah, Munich and the other, I mean, the second biggest city, Hamburg, are much more kind of preened and... Wealthy, yeah. I mean, Hamburg and Berlin, Hamburg yeah. and Munich are quite similar in that. Yeah, sense. they always have sort of beautifully manicured flower beds. And we're much wealthier. Yeah. So this is the curiosity. I mean, this is largely because, but not completely because of um, division. So you had West Berlin, uh, for all that time during the Cold War, 45 years, being a surrounded island. It was only kept going through the um, the uh, Allied airlift, which lifted the Russians' blockade at the end of the 1940s. And all the way through, it was protected by the Western Allies militarily, and it was massively subsidised by the rest of, rest of West Germany. They had a thing called the Jitters Premium, because so many people had the Jitters and wanted to leave they basically paid them to stay there. Uh, and right next to it, on the other side of the wall, you had communist, communist East Germany. It was the most militarized uh, place in Europe and one of the most militarized places in the world. So you have huge swathes of Berlin that are still underpopulated and unpopulated because of this huge great wall that was divided, dividing the place. But I mean, you know, only a few hundred yards from the chancellor's office, the center of power, you can sort of uh, you can see a flower allotment, a, you know, a garden allotment. Yeah. You can walk around and kids. it is still a lot more leisurely. Sometimes you can hear your footsteps on a on a Sunday evening or or whatever. The kind of thing that you wouldn't see in a bigger city. And it has one of the best railway stations, I think, in the world. New yeah. railway stations. Does that Absolutely. somehow yeah. capture the new Berlin, the railway station? It does. And Berlin is just sort of you, you really I mean, if you're a, a Brit like myself, uh, you just get a sense of I mean, Berlin is not going to be a world city in terms of economic output. I mean, one really interesting curiosity is that all the way through during this division and everything, uh, and it's only just changed in the last year or two, the average GDP, the average income per inhabitant in Berlin was lower than the national average. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's just extraordinary for most countries in the world. Where if you live in the capital city, you're deemed to have kind of succeeded and become become wealthier. So it's never had the money. the The finance is going to stay in Frankfurt. The all a lot of the big sort of advertising companies are in Munich or Hamburg and everything else. It doesn't really produce much economically. What it does produce, I think, it is really feels now like the political and diplomatic center of Europe. Everything that is going on with Russia and Ukraine and so much else seems to begin and end in Berlin. We had Anna Funder on the show. She just has a new book out on George Orwell's wife, uh, but she, of course, also authored Stasiland, probably the best book on certainly the secret police in East Germany. Is there anything left of East Germany when I walk around? I haven't spent as much time, but I've spent quite a lot of, as you, but I've spent quite a lot of time in Berlin over the last few years. You're always kind of looking for East Berlin and you're not quite sure 
where to look. I mean, we all, of course, love uh, Le Carres, the spy who came in from the cold that somehow captured this division between East and West Berlin. But is there an East and a West Berlin? There's certainly memories of it, but is there anything physically left, John? Oh, God, well, I, I'm a bit of a, of a weirdo. I'm a bit of a nerd. I mean, I can smell it. I can tell immediately where the wall was and what is East and what is West. And I quite often say to my friends, oh, I'm going West today. Um, and they kind of look at me as if I'm a bit weird um, because I lived, I was a correspondent in, in the GDR in East Berlin, shows how old I am, back in 1988 um, for the British paper, the Daily Telegraph. I was their first correspondent in the GDR. And within a year, I was their last one too because the country uh, disappeared. The centre of East Berlin, the historic centre, a place called Mitte and lots of other places um, around Friedrichshain, Prenzlauerberg, these sorts of districts. No, I mean, they're just sort of... Uh, they're sort of yeah. They're, 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 they're sort of hipster places, Williamsburg, yeah. you know, Dumbo, Shoreditch in London, you know, um, you know that, that sort of thing. You go further out, into real East Berlin, and it still feels very, very different. And there is also, uh, as one author put it before, there is still a wall in the mind. Uh, East German voting uh, patterns, sadly, huge lot more for the far right, uh, AFD, a lot more anti-migrant. I mean, I'm generalizing hugely, but it does still feel a very different place. Yeah, I mean, so many amazing books have been written. I I forgot about The Wall Jumper, another masterpiece about life in this city. Uh, let's end, John, by coming to October 2023. Berlin isn't the center of the world for that, of course, but you mentioned its Jewish roots. There was a piece in Der Spiegel uh, earlier this week from, from Jews living in Berlin saying, for the first time, I understood. I understand what it means to be Jewish there. Like every other city, there's more anti-Semitism because of what's happening in Gaza. Meanwhile, there was another piece suggesting that Israeli and Palestinian restaurant owners in Berlin are united. If there's any city that they might unite, it's Berlin. What's your sense of what's happening now as a consequence of, of what's happening in Gaza? And can Berlin offer us in any way, some way out of this catastrophe? Really good question. I've just done a piece. It'll be out in a few days' time for The Guardian on the whole Germany-Israel-Gaza question. It is so fraught. This whole question of do Germans, of all people, have any right to say anything about Israel and, and what is going on? Uh, the events of October the 7th have been absolutely seared in the minds of so many Berliners I know and I talk to whatever their religion and wherever they have come from. This absolutely goes to the heart of everything. There was the firebombing of a synagogue a couple of days after that happened. There have been some quite violent protests. There have also been a hell of a lot of protests that have been banned by the police, sparking accusations of uh, clamping down on free speech and, and, and heavy-handedness. There is a sort of... Berlin carries its history and it carries the sort of um, the weight of the world on its shoulders. I always feel an intensity to the debate, to the argument. You know, people don't really talk small talk. They don't talk house prices and sort of TV shows. They just talk politics so much of the time and no time more 
than now. You have people absolutely devastated by what has happened, people who believe 100% that Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, is right in saying we are with Israel, come what may. You have others saying, well, yes, it was terrible what happened, but Israel cannot be uh, exerting collective punishment on all Palestinians in Gaza. And then you have Germans saying, yes, you can't say that because you're German. You're not allowed to say that. Then you have the migrant communities and and and, and all of that. It's it's absolutely it's the, it's the strengths and the weaknesses uh, coming through. But you absolutely feel that this whole these existential discussions are being had all the time. 